You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Turning to the Mystics. This is our first dialogue for the season. And today, Jim and I will be reflecting on his first meditation. And Jim, I wanted to start by asking you, why did you choose that particular piece of St. John's work to reflect on? Yes. <clears throat> you know, this reflection, which is um, the Senamon Carmel Book 2, Chapter 13, uh, I, I chose it because um, this is really where he begins um, giving us insights into ways we tend to pray before the onset of the dark night. So this is a kind of a, a way to say the devout Christian or the sincere spiritual person might pray each day, you know, prior to the onset of the dark night. And that's why I chose it, because this helps us to... Uh, he also then shows how the dark night begins to occur, which can be quite confusing at first in three signs. And so it's a nice experiential introduction with how it occurs in prayer. And then in the subsequent sessions, we'll see how it spreads out into all of life. It becomes an habitual underlying thing that affects all of life, this uh, finding our way to perfect union with God in a passage through a dark night, uh, which emerges with this uh, infinite love, this union with the love of God. So that's why I chose mm, it. Thank you. I re-listened to the introduction as well before this dialogue session and I was struck by at the very end of the introduction where you go through the things that St. John of the Cross assumes. And so um, I just I just wanted to reflect a little bit on that in relation to prayer. Yeah. So he's assuming a certain experience in prayer or a certain commitment to prayer. Yes. Is, is that right? Yes. Let's talk about that. Let's reflect on that together. We can dialogue about it. Um, I think I think what he assumes is he's speaking to the sincere Christian person, like sincerely wanting to respond to Christ, follow me, and to uh, found our life upon Christ's life, and which is our faith, the measure of which is love. And this involves then not just experiencing God's loving presence in our life in a relationship with other people, but experiencing God's loving relationship with us in our heart in prayer. And so what are the qualities of the way the sincere Christian person prays and how they're accustomed to experiencing God's presence in prayer? And um, uh, as a kind of a, a, like a rendezvous with God, like this we might say. And I think what he's assuming here, what he's saying is, is that... Um, we're, we're, that our experience of God on this earth comes to us through faith. So uh, we hear uh, God loves us, and through the power of the Spirit who dwells in our hearts, we're empowered to experience and know that God does love us. So that in prayer, and here I think he would typically assume too, uh, which we were talking about in Teresa, some with Merton, where we would begin then with this lexio, that is, we would open the scriptures or open to a passage in the Gospels 
and we would listen to Jesus speaking personally to us or the scriptures, whatever the spiritual voices we turn to. And we would see that as God's voice speaking personally to us in the moment that we're praying. Now, when we do that and experience that, then we respond to God in a dialogue, a meditatio. And that meditatio leads to a response of love. Uh, like, help me with this, be faithful to this. The key thing for John of the Cross is that these are finite ways of experiencing and responding to the infinite presence of God. And so, and they're efficacious unto holiness, but they're finite in that it's, it's our belief, our insight, our consolation, our aspiration, our inspiration, our ministry, efficacious unto holiness. That's what he's assuming. He's also assuming that when we die, it won't be like this. When we pass through the veil of death, we'll pass through into an infinite union with the infinite presence of God. As one with God, as God is one with God, in our nothingness without God, as a life of glory. And that ultimate destiny of intimate union, infinite union with the infinite mystery of God, beyond thought, beyond images, beyond this. What starts to happen in where our journey starts becoming mystical is even though we're still on this earth, God begins to grant us a, a kind of a foretaste of an infinite union with God when we're still in the body, we're still in time. Now, each mystic introduces this, there's different ways we, this taste can happen to us. For Teresa, you call in the first three mansions, which is Lexio, Meditatio, and Prayer. In the fourth mansion, it comes as the quiet. The time has come to love more and think less. And in that quiet, you begin to realize your heart's being enlarged to divine proportions. It goes from there. For Merton, it began in such simple moments as turning to see a flock of birds descending or knowing love in your own heart. And you're quickened from within with a sense of a oneness. And then it goes from there. For John of the Cross, he doesn't, he doesn't present it as beginning in those ways. He presents it as a deprivation of consolation. So you go to your place of prayer, and you open the scriptures, and you're very devout, and you look forward to the rendezvous. You find nurturance in it, and um, uh, you're not nurtured. You're not nurtured, and the well goes dry, and there's a deprivation. And he says what's really happening is it God seeing that we're attached to the finite ways of experiencing the infinite presence of God. God weans us off that dependency by simply removing our ability to be nurtured. That's the approach on the cross takes. And then it goes from, not only does that just happen in prayer, then it happens to all of life. Everywhere we turn, there's not enoughness about everything. He said, but if we don't panic, if we don't panic and just stay with the deprivation, then the third sign is where all of a sudden this fullness starts welling up, which is really what he's then getting into. So the dark night then is really a deprivation of the ability to experience God in finite ways. So that weaned off of those, there can start to be the influx of experiencing God in infinite ways through a kind of deep, quiet, spacious kind of attentiveness beyond words. So that's the gist of it. Jim, when he talks about the dark night, there's a piece in the poem where he says, 
that the dark night is guiding him. And uh, so is the deprivation kind of a guidance? Yeah, it is. In this sense, it is sense. Let's say uh, you go through the deprivation, you're in the deprivation, and then what you start to experience, if you just stay with it in complete dependency on God, and I'm, I'm reading then from the third sign, Article 7, at the beginning of this state, the loving knowledge is almost unnoticeable. There are two reasons for this. Ordinarily, the incipient loving knowledge is extremely subtle and delicate and almost imperceptible. Second, a person who is habituated to the exercise of meditation, which is wholly sensible, hardly perceives or feels this new insensible, purely spiritual experience. This is especially so when through failure to understand it, he does not permit himself any quietude strives after the other more sensory experience. But the more habituated he becomes to this calm, the deeper his experience of the general loving knowledge of God will grow. This knowledge is more enjoyable than all other things, because without the soul's labor, it affords peace, rest, savor, and delight. So here's how the night guides us, I would think. We're sitting there in this night, which we didn't see coming. We weren't planning on this. And um, we might decide in this wordless powerlessness to turn back and try to meditate again by thinking about something. And you find every time you try it, you're not being true to where your heart is. It doesn't nurture. It doesn't nurture. And it's somehow impoverished. Something's missing in it. But then every time you turn back to the quiet again, Every time you just sit in the sustained attentiveness infused with love, this influx of the depth of presence keeps welling up. But you need to be very patient because it tends to be very delicate and very subtle. And so for a long time, you don't even notice it. But if you recalibrate your heart to a fine enough scale, you start to see this unexpected enrichment of presence welling up. And so that's how the night guides you. See, as long as I'm willing to stay in this sweet powerlessness, I'm unexplainably led into unexplainably depths of simplicity and presence. Every time I turn back to get my bearings again and what I can think about, I feel I'm at odds see, with what's happening to me. It's like a spiritual direction discernment question within yourself. So he's really offering contemplative spiritual direction to people, for people to whom this is happening, and also to let us all know that this can happen to all of us. And as we'll talk about a little bit later, it already is happening to all of us in different ways. It's a matter of recognizing this transformative event that happens to Mm -hmm. us in life, really, I think. Yes. Stepping back to the beginning, Jim, when we start our prayer life and start moving into a sense of God's presence in other people in our own heart in the in the scripture do you think that the prayer life changes throughout the years so this is a significant change he's talking about but is is prayer and faith kind of stable and throughout yes. our lives yes. Let, let's say th- that there's someone through their whole life in prayer never experiences this because it's a kind of a charism doesn't happen to everybody and they spend their whole life in devotional sincerity in, uh, uh, in, the, in the Lexio, 
of listening to God speak in prayer and speaking to them in all of life. A meditatio, they reflect upon the things of God as given to them in their life and in their prayer. And then in the prayer, sincere desire, sustain me, help me. And then they translate that into attitudes, Christ-like attitudes, and then translate that into how they treat other people themselves. And that's a life of deep holiness. A person could be, live a very saintly life and not once experience it in this um, deprivation way. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. But they might have times where they're grieving and they're experiencing yes. loss, or they might have times where they're experiencing greater joy or gratitude. So the, the prayer life, the, the sense of God's pre- presence can yes, but, shift and change. Yes, but here's the difference, I think. And this mm-hmm. is what I like to say, where we all can have experiences of the dark night. Mm-hmm. Let's say a person is going through their life and they hit really hard times. And as they hit hard times with their health or their marriage or parenting or their job or loss of friends, whatever it is, the hard times, pandemic, something. Mm-hmm. They experience it as a hardship and they turn to God to give them the strength to get through it. See? They turn for help, they turn to prayer. And, they, and that goes the way it goes. They kind of, yeah. The dark night experience would be this. I'm, I've come upon hard times. And in my marriage or in my parenting or in my job or in my health or in my career, I hit hard times. And it's really hard. It's really, really, really hard. It is a constancy and long-suffering. I realize it's not just hard. Something's being given to me out of it. Like inner resources within and beyond myself I didn't know I had. It's like in AA. And, and, and addiction from re- recovery from addiction. A person goes through all this hardship, you know, just wreckage of the past, everything. But it isn't sobriety just re- restabilizes them. But having had a spiritual awakening as a result of following these steps. And so their addiction and the pain of the addiction was a dark night in which out of that loss, a light shined in their life that maybe they never would have found had they not gone through that night. And that's why they can say they're grateful for their addiction. Like their addiction saved their life. They didn't get back to where they were. It gave them an unexpected fullness that they never would have found had all hell not broken loose. And I would say that's how the dark night can happen to all of us. It isn't just that we struggle, ask God for the strength to get through something, but in the strength, in the struggle itself, we start to notice something's happening inside of us. There's something very important, actually. And sometimes when we're shooting the rapids, we don't see it when it's happening. But as it settles, we look back and we're in a different place. See, and I would say that's how the dark night pertains to all of us. That, that the transformative power of a loss bringing us into a fullness we wouldn't have found without the loss. And that's, uh, what's the difference between someone who, who goes through that experience and does deepen versus someone who, who might not experience that dark night, that deepening. What, what's going on there, do you think? Well, I, I think this. I mean, life goes the way it goes. So I, I just want to talk the psychological levels first. Sometimes people hit hard times, and uh, they don't come out of it. Not only do the hard times go on, but they fragment. They, they break inside 
And some people never come out of that. If they don't get the help they need or someone to be there for them, life's hard. You know, and some people, if things fall apart, they never do get it back together again. And um, it goes different ways. Life is suffering. Sometimes people do get the help they need. But again, they get the help they need that restores them back to a more balanced place. And they, and they move on. So that's how it goes. But then there are some people for whom the, the, the troubles, the heart, the unraveling of everything, it was so painful. It wasn't just painful. See, like, uh, like Jesus, the pearl of great price. You came upon a pearl of great price within yourself. And, and a certain invincibility of God's presence. And uh, so that's the providential nature of this. This is why I think we all need to get the help that we need to stabilize and how to kind of see God in it. And likewise, insofar as we're on this journey, and we're all on this journey in different ways, to always be open because we never know when it's going to be our turn to pass this on to somebody. And such a simple thing as stopping to ask somebody, are you okay? You could be saving their life. You know? And so I think that's, that's the rhythms of grace the move through the darkness of the world. And here we're saying it has the potential for mystical awakening. It has, like, this, like the hymn, Amazing Grace. Here's a slave trader. But all this horrendous things, the amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. But blind, but now I see. see? And the song to this day moves us when we hear it. See? And that'd be the dark night. See? Oh, light, dark. He says, oh, darkness lovelier than the dawn. Because precisely because it got so dark, the light shone in my heart and led me out of the darkness. No. And Jim, it's not a reflection of the person um, or how much God loves the person or how you know faithful the person is in terms of whether they move into this deeper experience or not, because the, the presence of God is the same for all of us. Is that right? Yeah. John of the Cross says there's a passage where he says, he says, he said, I need to clarify what divine union means. He said, one form of divine union is God's infinite union with everyone in that God's perpetually creating all things, sustaining them in being. So God's sustaining oneness is the God's sustaining oneness that empowers us to take our next breath, to stand up and sit down. You know, it's the empowerment of the, of the sun to rise each morning and the sun to set each night. It's kind of the sacredness of um, the creative generosity of God flowing out as the gift and miracle of being alive and real. There's that. He says this is different than this effective union, which is the extent to which in our heart we realize that and respond to it. See? So God's present in all of us. God's infinitely in love with all of us. God is sustaining us, come what may. But the extent to which in our conscious reflection we're aware of that and respond to it. That's the grace event, both in the first level of faith, the sincerity of discipleship, and how we're sustained by faith to go through life and so on. And then also how through those very struggles it can quicken into this mystical uh, that, that he's concerned about here. He's offering guidance for people uh, that are being introduced to this mystical dimension of this. Mm -hmm. And Jim, am I hearing this right, that there's a sense of uh, expansiveness, so ways we 
knew, thought we knew about God, ways we communicated with God. And on the other side of the dark night or through the dark night, there's, there's some kind of um, beyond, beyond expansion, yeah. new possibility, uh, new deepening of our understanding of who God is or new ways of communicating. Or Exactly. See, let, let's say first we're talking about the life illumined by faith, the measure of which is love, and we live this. And we can really speak of incremental degrees of expansion and contraction. We can speak we're qualitatively more aware of the love of God, more responsive than we used to be. We're also aware that we have inner work to do, that our heart's contracted, that we're kind of, we need help, the more or the less, the more or the less. See? And that's real. And we work with that, and we know God's with us in it, and it goes, it goes the way it goes. What John of the Cross is saying, the dark night is the deprivation of the ability to function at that level. Because what starts to happen in the beginning of the dark night is that um, it's like you unexplainably start coming upon a boundaryless fulfillment. That you can't add anything to it because it's already infinite and nothing threatens it. But it's not, it doesn't belong to you. It's that in you that belongs entirely to God in a kind of godly fullness. So as soon as you turn back around to try to make it fit in your answer system, as soon as you try to make it, it doesn't fit. That's still there at that level. But this has to do more with, like the, like it's like an intimate, I think it's the intimate awareness of, of a longing we don't understand, for a fulfillment we don't understand. But what we know is real because we can taste it in the poverty of our heart. He says to have no other light to guide you except the one that burns in your heart. See, like that. Beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. I think, Jim, when you, when I read the poetry or, or even listening to you and Mirabai speak the poetry, it, it has a quality to it that's so um, just beautiful, deep, yeah. kind of heartfelt. But then John of the Cross was asked to go one step further and offer like practical, a practical understanding of the steps of what happened to get to that poetry. Yes. Let's say there's some mystics who bear witness to this, but they don't show you the path to get. Julianne of Norwich, for example, in Revelations of Divine Love. Also in poetry, like the poetry of Mary Oliver or T.S. Eliot, it's so beautiful. So you just sit in the beauty, but they don't show you how to, like, how do I do that? When you're sitting in the present, you're in its presence. But how do I do it? So John of the Cross, these, these teachers that we follow here, Teresa, John, and Mar what they are is there are people, we're going to look at Julianne too, because there's a way to, there is a way to get. Um, so one, they bear witness to this. So when you're, and I mentioned this, I think, in the introductory thing we did when I was 18 and read John of the Cross for the first time, walked out in the woods and sat at the base of a tree and opened it up. It just, I can't tell you, it just blew me away. You know, it was so beautiful. And I knew it was somehow about me. But then he takes another step. He takes another step. He says, I want to help you to understand what's happening to you. He says, because this can be very confusing. And I want to give you guidance so you don't unwittingly get in the way of what's happening to you. And I want to offer you 
ways of discerning how to move on so it can get ever deeper, 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 deeper. And that's what makes these mystic teachers so helpful. It's beautiful, mm-hmm. but it also is a, it illumines a path. See? It illumines like a way to proceed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jim, the, what I'm hearing you say is if you determine this is happening to you, that actually in the end there's nothing you can do. It, it, it just kind of be open to it having its way with you is that the yeah, yeah except this except this yes or no i would say mm-hmm. it, it's really true there's it's, you can't do anything about it because it's god <laughs> you know it's god's turn you know, this is you're not in control here this is like clear see? Yeah. but here's what we can do it because re- love is never imposed it's always offered what's the artistry of cooperating with this see because i can walk away from it and maybe sometimes we do, it's just we walk away and then it's there waiting for us, it comes back. So what's the artistry of obediential fidelity to what's happening? It's a kind of a paradoxical engagement of a kind of a surrendered um, oneness with God doing this to you as you keep letting it wash over you and go into you and letting it deep. So there, there is a paradoxical like fidelity about it, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You also said um, that the meditation, do you, do you suggest people keep trying the daily prayer and the daily meditation even when it's kind of drying up like this? <laughs> yes, like drats. I can still pray. Darn it. I'm not, I'm not a mystic yet. Damn, some people get all the luck. <laughs> I'm just your average garden variety Christian. <laughs> On my knees, my hands folded. Yeah, walking around doing my best. (laughs) Cripe. (laughs) I got to wait until I die to experience this. This isn't fair. No, here's what I think. Here's what I think. Really. Where each of us are right now in our life, all the givens of our life, say we're meeting in spiritual direction to talk, like let's talk. That where you are with all the givens, the painful and the good, where you are in your attitude to want to be a person of goodwill, to want to be an attentive, engaged, vulnerable, grounded person as best you can and help other people do the same. And the more you're responsive to the graces that are given to you through your faith, through scripture, through the Eucharist, through prayer, through ministry, that is holiness. Mm. That is because the, the measure uh, in this path is not the measure to which you've had certain kind of experiences. See, the measure is the extent to which we surrender to the will of God, which mm. is to surrender to love. Mm-hmm. And so that's all. And remember, too, Teresa said that. She said there are some people, she starts the fourth mansion, who don't have these experiences at all, that are much holier than people who have them. It's a charism. Mm-hmm. And some people have it. I think we're talking about earlier, each of us has it in our own way where we can experience a transformative, like easing into something that was always there, mm-hmm. and we were just fighting it somehow, and we, ugh, we do this. We all, and somehow we know that's godly. There's something graced about it. So I think we all have that. Mm-hmm. But um, he's, he's, writing for, he's writing for people who are living this life. He kind of assumes that the ordinary, good, Christian, holy, Christ-like life with all of its ups and downs, but there are some people for whom this starts to happen. 
And also there are people for whom this starts to happen differently. Like in Teresa, it doesn't start with a dark night. It starts with the quiet, see? And your heart's being enlarged to divine proportions. But then in the sixth mansion, all hell breaks loose and the night starts because mm -hmm. you're being unraveled. Mm -hmm. You know, you're being unraveled and she follows that path. And so I, I put it that way. That's what counts is there are situation. The very fact people are drawn to listen to this, that very fact bears witness they are already on this path. Because if they weren't, they wouldn't be drawn to listen to it. Because we only recognize what we know. And the very fact it speaks to us, the hunger for it's already there. And that's what matters. And you just lean into it, you know, and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I feel sometimes a temptation that the um, journey is to escape, like these beautiful poems or um, this sense of of experiencing something more infinite. And uh, so how do you balance out that sense of I'm, es I'm escaping from the finite, but it all has to land back in the finite at some level in my life. Is that right, Jim? I think I think this that um, you know for some people uh, this commitment to spirituality is an escape. The reason they're at church every night is they don't want to go home. See? But maybe it's that escape that holds them together. Right? But it is an escape, see? and that's why it doesn't really mature until of escaping from life. It gives us the courage to face life as best we can, but we're, sometimes that is there. You know. I think what John of the Cross would say about this is that you'll notice, uh, Teresa of Avila says somewhere in the castle, she says, you know, when all this started, if you knew what you were getting into, you'd think maybe I, sh maybe it I would have been better off not going down this road. And what you realize is you're just being undone in silence. This is not a, a, a walk in the park. See, you know what I mean? There's a kind of a death to everything less than infinite love. And also, I think it's to realize that it's true, that it, it brings us back to being faithful to what we need to face in our vulnerability. Like it brings us so we get more real. That's the mark of it. It has a quality of heightened empathy, heightened compassion, heightened mm. presence. But we should always uh, be aware of that because it can be an escape. Mm -hmm. no. And but, John, uh, John of the Cross in his own life after the Dark Knight was very concretely present to his ministry, to what yeah. he was asked to do. He, he when he, uh, he goes, when we look at the spiritual canticle and the light that shines out of the darkness and being married to God, mystical marriage and so on, um, he was really known for his sensitivity to the poor, his sensitivity to the sick. He was also known for his compassion. You know, where the friars, one of the friars writes in their journal, when we go off our little Sunday groups and small groups for our walk, we always hope John of the Cross will join us because he always makes us laugh. You know, the deep love he had for Teresa, this deep mystical friendship bond that they had. He was just fully alive compassion. At, at his death, you know, the monastery that he went to, he deliberately chose one of the superior who didn't like him. And on his deathbed, he called the superior in and said, whatever I did to contribute to the conflict between us, I want to apologize. That's how he died. And it said the superior came out crying, changed his life. 
And so that's that's the evidence of this. It's, it's, it kind of radicalizes, which I think is Christ consciousness in the world. It, it's beyond the darkness of this world in a way that paradoxically radicalizes our presence in it through the holiness of life on life's terms, they say in AA. And we walk it as holy and we're all infinitely love broken people, you know, and we're trying to be faithful to the grace of this and bear witness to it. And, yeah. Sometimes I say to myself a little prayer in my advancing years, God help me to be the kind of old person young people want old people to be. Oh. <laughs> See, help me, you know, help me not just to talk like this, but help me to walk around like this and answer the phone like this and talk to my grandchildren like this. And, uh, you know, we're all trying to, we all need to do our best here to walk the walk. Yeah. Mm, that's lovely. I was going to ask you if you have felt the dark night yourself, if you feel like you've been through this passage. I do. Very much so. I, uh, one, in a certain sense, when I grew up with this intense trauma, which is this book I'm writing now, and uh, and uh, then clinging to God in prayer to save my life, and then uh, went to the monastery, lived in cloistered silence for six years. I changed my life, got me into this. I changed my life, and. Um, but then what happened when I was sexually abused by one of the monks, I had a breakdown and lost refuge and uh, dropped out of the church. I left, see, and uh, I just was lost, absolutely lost. But um, as I slowly found my way back, first through yoga, actually, and through the Dharma, and then kind of circled back around into Catholic, mystical, this Catholicism. I came back around into it again. And, um, and then I had m more experiences of it when my divorce happened and um, my family was falling apart and uh, like a sense of loss, like nowhere to go, you know, where do I go from here? And that paradoxically um, transformed me and strengthened me. You know? when, my, when Maureen died, was a dark night, just unbearable, just excruciatingly unbearable. But out of it has come, I'm still settling into it, a kind of a mysterious gentleness about it. You know, something very, um, I was talking to one of my brothers on the phone and he said, well, you know, Jim, when you were in the monastery, you were telling Thomas Merton you wanted to be a hermit. And now this yeah. comes full circle, guess what? You're a hermit. <laughs> An unwilling hermit. And I said, oh, that's probably right. So it's so strange to me that I live here like this, where we live for 30 years, the ocean's right outside. I get to teach like this from my home like this. I'm close to my daughters. And it's life's very fleeting, fragile, and ultimately divine, I think. So I, I do think, I several times over, I've been through this, you know. And there might be more to come, you know. So you just thought, oh, yeah, there you go. See, what I think we're talking about, is it possible to die, to so deeply die to everything less an infinite union with infinite love, that when the moment of death happens, nothing will happen? I mean, something will happen biologically, see? but it, it would have already occurred, see? You know what I mean? It, it has already become celestial in its unexplainable simplicity like that. Is that 
I mean, that's that's high poetically sensitive in a way. Mm. Just mm. continually surrendering yeah. anything that gets in the way that of yeah. trusting God, of loving exactly. God. Exactly. Like Jesus on the God. cross, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he handed himself over to the God he could no longer find. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? So my last breath I'll inhale. God breathed into me the gift of the breath. But when I exhale, I'll exhale myself into God like this. And uh, the circle completes itself. Can I get to a place where that, that, that vision becomes so um, viscerally self-evident to me? It is so habituated. Because I feel that's what's transforming in these mystics I've been following. I just feel I'm trying to pass on what was given to me, you know, so each person can sense how it's actively being given to them now, you know, in their own unique way, and then follow it and see where it goes. That's what my sense of these sessions are, really. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, you are, you are the gift. You are the gift. And thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.